Ruth, chapter 4, our last study on Ruth. Uh, We'll begin with verse 1 and read through the whole chapter. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat there, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let us pray. O Lord, teach us uh, 
more of who you are as our great God and glorious Redeemer. Lord, draw us after you to walk in your ways and to live out lives of joy and fullness and richness, uh, richness in chesed and steadfast love for one another and a love that breaks out into our dark world as you have broken into this dark world with your love for us. Uh, Lord, may we be a reflection of our God and Lord, may we rejoice in you always uh, that we have come to know this glorious God who in revealing himself to us uh, has revealed one beyond imagination in goodness and greatness. Oh Lord, enlarge our hearts to love you more and more and adore you more and more. Amen. This uh, fourth chapter is basically a, a kind of a mirror image of the first chapter, but it, it, the first chapter is the loss, the desperate, uh, the desperate loss and bitterness of Naomi uh, in graphic terms so that when she finally comes back to Israel, she won't take the name Naomi anymore, right? She says, no, my name is Mara, uh, uses that word that was used of uh, the bitter waters in the wilderness. My, my, my life is marked by utter bitter, bitterness, bitter loss stamped over her life. And then you come to chapter four and it's glorious restoration stamps her life, replaces that bitter loss. And chapters two and three are really the movement from loss to restoration. The movement affected through the faithful, steadfast love of Ruth and Boaz. But the story is really about Naomi. It's about her loss and it's about her restoration, even though the name of the book is, is Ruth. Now, there are several indicators. We won't look at all of them, but uh, I want to look at a few indicators to show that there's this parallel between chapter 1 and chapter 4. Direct, purposeful uh, copies of each other or repeats of certain themes or certain events. Uh, for instance, when it says in the end of chapter 1... Uh, she says, the Lord has returned, the Naomi returned the, the Ruth of Moab, her, uh, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab. Um, and this word returned is really that, in fact, there's a causative word here that she, that the Lord returned her. And it's the same word used in chapter 4, where it says that uh, she has been restored. Uh, may his name be renowned to her store of life, chapter 4, verse uh, 15. And so the, the Lord restored her in her bitterness or returned her to her bitterness, but the same word restored in chapter 4. So there's that parallel. It's interesting that there's a three-way conversation between Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, and then one of the three exits the scene, Orpah. In chapter 4, 
there's the three-way conversation between, uh, between Boaz, so-and-so, as we will learn his name, it's, it's really so-and-so, um, and the, the group of elders, and then so-and-so exit. So a three-way conversation, somebody exits. A three-way conversation, somebody exits. We've already seen early on that in chapter 1, verse 5, when he speak, speaks of the loss of her sons, it's the only time in Scripture grown men are called yelled or children. And that's purposeful so that when the child in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 16, is put on her lap, uh, it's a yelled, a child. So there is this purposeful use of yelled to, to say the loss of yelled, the restoration of yelled in, in chapter 4. And uh, so there, there's this, this parallel back and forth between the two uh, chapters so that the things that happen in chapter 4 keep recalling the things that happen in chapter 1 to show you that this is the restoration of what was, was lost. Now, as we get into the uh, actual text here, chapter 4, there's one commentator translates the word friend in chapter 4, uh, verse 1, as so-and-so. And really, that's probably the best translation of the Hebrew. Friend is not really a good translation and, of course, this is the narrator's use. Uh, he puts this word more or less in uh, Boaz's mouth, but he does it on purpose to say, you know, this guy ended up being a nobody. He's not really worth naming. We're just going to... And he said if we were going to say it, we'd say, well, I know so-and-so came by, and it's not important that you know his name. We'll get into more of why that uh, is, is such. And there's a lot of cultural, uh, economic issues that are here and some disagreement as to what really is happening. But here's the essence of it. So likely scenario is that when uh, Elimelech left Israel, he sold off his land. He, he still had ownership of the land, but he sold the fruits of it or the fruit-making capacity, like renting out your land for someone to grow crops on, all right? Or like if, uh, if somebody sold the mineral rights for their land, but they held, actually owned the land, but they sold the mineral rights so that somebody could make money off the mineral rights. That's basically what uh, he had done uh, with some money, and, and perhaps he, he sold that, and when his money ran out and the famine he, he left for uh, Moab. Um, so when they come back, she's got legal, because she's the widow, she, can, she has the ownership of the land, but she doesn't have the rights to use the land. Those have been sold off. And so she needs to have this restored, someone to buy back the rights for her, but then she can't really work the land, so she's in a real, a real fix here and is likely just to, to lose the land altogether. Because at the time of Jubilee, when land is restored to original owners, it couldn't be restored unless one of the men of the family still was there. And so 
Elimelech's gone. Kilion and Malon are gone. They're dead. Uh, so she stands to lose the land altogether. So that's why uh, Boaz is stepping in. And that's, that's what uh, Ruth was appealing to Boaz about on the threshing floor. You be our redeemer. You be the goel, the one to restore what Naomi is, uh, has lost and is about to lose uh, completely. So it's unlikely that this so-and-so would not know about Ruth, okay? You can't really see that in the text. It almost like he's like, oh, there's a girl involved? Well, he knew about, everybody knew she was there. Everybody knew that uh, uh, she's attached to Naomi uh, and that if you, if you take the land, then there's the Leverett uh, practice that if someone's uh, brother uh, dies, then it's the brother's opportunity in showing love to his brother to marry his brother's wife and to raise children for the sake of his brother. It's an honorable thing. Um, in chapter 38, we can see how it goes badly with the sons of Judah when they didn't want to follow through with that responsibility. Uh, we'll talk, maybe talk about that a little later, depending on time. However, in this case, it came with the territory. And he knew that, commentators think. He knew that this land is tied up with Ruth, but it's likely that he was hoping that he could just slip this on by and not have to deal. Maybe it won't be mentioned. Maybe she won't be mentioned. And so if he can buy the land and the, uh, the rights to it, then when Jubilee comes up, he gets to keep the land and he has no responsibility to give it to anybody because uh, he didn't marry her and He's not raising somebody for Elimelech. But if he does marry her and raises somebody for Elimelech, the land goes to Elimelech's uh, child or, or, or to the grandchild, in this case, Ruth's uh, son. So uh, this guy is, in one way, you might say he's sticking to the letter of the law to say, you know, I don't have to redeem it. I'm not going to redeem it. And you think, well, okay, that's your choice. That's not the way the text looks at it. It's not the way the narrator looks at it. And that's why they use the word so-and-so. And the idea is that if you are not giving your heart uh, to the, your relatives and you're not putting yourself out to sacrifice for your relatives and redeem your relatives, then you're just a nobody. You stay anonymous. And anonymity basically carries with it judgment as well. You know, a condemnation on someone who will not put himself out. And he probably was trying to run a deal like somebody trying to sell a car real fast before you find out it's got a bad transmission, right? Just trying to get through this deal. Let's get through this deal and not talk about this woman. And so then when he brings it up, it's, it's probably more like, oh, there's a woman. Well, um, he has to put up a show, but the text treats him very poorly, uh, that he has no real character because the text, like Jesus, calls for 
the highest character. You know, when Jesus, we've talked about this before, when Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats in judgment day, he's dealing with people who were sacrificial and willing to lose everything to help their brothers and sisters in prison or those who were not willing to lose everything to help their brothers and sisters in prison. I mean, that's no small thing, but Jesus said the sheep lay themselves out and sacrifice themselves, even if they lose their lives in doing so. That's what sheep do, goats don't. Well, it's interesting in an Old Testament context how severely it looks upon this man who may be carrying out the strict letter of the law, not doing anything he doesn't have to do, but he is not showing compassion. He is not showing God's love manifested, you know, in a human level. So he backs out. Uh, interesting in this light of what Jesus says in John chapter 12 uh, in talking about his own upcoming death and he draws principles from this uh, saying that un unless a seed dies and is buried in the ground, it won't bear fruit. And there's the, the picture, unless I die, unless I give myself up, I will not bear fruit uh, and you won't either. And he who holds on to his life or loves his life, grasps on to his life, will lose his life. He who hates his life and is willing to lose his life gains his life. And so Mr. So-and-so here tried to hold on to his life, hold on to his property, not, not lose anything, not put himself out and ex expend himself uh, for his brother or his relative, and he lost his life. Because we are called to be like Christ. And isn't it interesting what Paul says in Philippians 2? He did not regard what? Equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see? Grasp on to that. Don't let it go. Don't go sacrifice yourself for others. Don't spin yourself and give yourself away. No, Jesus didn't do that. And he says, if you do that, you will lose your life think you're holding on to it, but you're going to lose your life. Spend it. Be lavish. Give yourself away. Then you will gain your life now and forever. And it's interesting how this is embedded in this precious little book of Ruth. There's also a larger picture here that is involved in, in why the land is so important because Israel was... The, the, the land of Israel is basically in the overall structure of the Bible uh, was a down payment, you might say, of paradise restored. That is, we lost Eden with Adam and Eve and we finally, through flood and the Tower of Babel, we get to Abraham where God promises him a land. One little strip of land in Palestine and this land was a token of what would ultimately come to God's people, and that is the whole earth. So this was, that's why it was so important to hold on to your land, to, to never be thrust from your land, to keep your inheritance in the land, because 
in the theo theological way of thinking, it's pointing toward the ultimate, ultimate inheritance we have in Christ Jesus that cannot be taken away from us. Uh, and so there were tremendous implications uh, of the meaning. And that's why in Romans 4.13, instead of saying that uh, Abraham was promised the land, uh, Paul says he was promised the world, you know, that he would inherit the world. And you think, well, I don't think that's exactly what it said using the word cosmos back there. But Paul is drawing out the full meaning of what was promised to Abraham wasn't simply ultimately just this land, but a promise of the whole earth. And of course, Jesus, the meek shall inherit the earth. And throughout the New Testament, we get full restoration uh, to the, of the whole earth and we inherit it. Uh, so that's just another reason why this uh, restoration of the land uh, had such tremendous overtones uh, in that, that context. Uh, and isn't it amazing how highly uh, he was uh, praised at the end of this section in verse 11, uh, that is Boaz, um, that the Lord, they, they, they said, we are witnesses, and then may the Lord make the woman like Rachel and Leah and compared it to Perez, all of the line of, of Judah. And it's amazing that they felt like there was something huge happening here. Uh, and these, these, this prayer, this blessing upon uh, this Moabite woman who was a former Moabite pagan, but now full uh, woman of Israel who'd take, come under the wings of Yahweh and now they are comparing her to the great women of the Old Testament, of the great women of the patriarchs. May she be like them. It's a remarkable statement that she is basically a mother in Israel at this point. And this really in the providence of God and revelation of the Holy Spirit became a kind of prophetic word uh, because as we know here, she became then the uh, great grandmother, the grandmother of of David uh, himself, or the great grandmother of David. Um, so, uh, amazing pronouncement upon her, and it, it's also a token of how astounding her love for Naomi was, her faithfulness, her attachment to, to Yahweh himself. In fact, uh, one commentator, Ulrich, says this about Ruth. More than anyone else in the history of Israel, Ruth embodies the fundamental principle of the nation's ethic. You shall love your, the, uh, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. To, to love strangers even as you love yourself. And he says, it was a stranger that taught them what this means. A stranger, an alien who came into Israel, a former pagan who lived out the very ethic of Israel and then became a mother in Israel. And certainly that was in the 
and forms of the New Testament and her inclusion in the Matthew genealogy of Jesus a precursor of the Gentile influx of all the Gentiles throughout the world of, of Jesus bringing in people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And she was like a little down payment. You know, she was an early uh, symbol of what was to come. Well, then we get to the women's uh, statement in verses 13 and following. And this corresponds, another correspondence, uh, to the encounter Naomi had at the end of chapter one. And at this point, they simply are receiving and hearing her pain. And the women say in verse 19 of chapter one, is this Naomi? And then she cries out, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. But it is this exchange between Naomi and the women. And now Instead of her pouring out her bitterness to the women, the women are pouring out the blessings of God upon her. But you're to think of the other one as this one occurs. What a turnaround uh, in this blessing uh, of the Lord. And may his name be renowned in Israel. The only time a child is called a goel or a redeemer, that this child is and is going to restore your life, is going to uh, nourish you in your old age, um, and states that your daughter-in-law who loves you, uh, and she has expressed it, of course. This is not the word for kesed. It's a different word for love. Um, but it, it's used of, of uh, Ruth's love for her mother expressed in her uh, steadfast love in all aspects of her life toward her. And this is a remarkable statement when you especially think of the poor statement by, uh, and you can just look across the page and El, uh, Elkanah, who was Hannah's husband, and his uh, statement in verse 8 when she was weeping because she didn't have a child, remember, he says, Am I not more to you than ten sons? You know, and you're just like, ooh, bad statement. You know, it's one of those things where guys say, and then I said to her, oh, no, you didn't. You didn't really say that out loud, did you? Yeah, he said it out loud. Am I not more to you than ten sons? And there was a general statement of somebody being greater than seven sons, and he was probably trying to blow the top of it. I, even more than ten sons. But this is remarkable that a daughter-in-law is considered better than seven sons. I mean, seven sons is the perfect, it's the ultimate, it's the full complement. It's not just the number. It's a statement of if you had all the sons you could ever have that would supply all of your needs and give you all the joy in the world, she's better than that. She's better than that. Remarkable statement of, of Ruth in this. Um, What's interesting leading up to that is verse 13 when it's just a staccato reading here in the original. He took Ruth, became his wife, went into her. She conceived, bore a son, right? So we went through nine months in just a few words because the whole point is to get to this restoration and fulfillment of Naomi. 
So you see, even the birth and, and how that came about, that's not, okay, okay, this is that. She's got a child. Let's talk about Naomi being restored here. Uh, so she has this redeemer and he's going to be renowned in Israel. And this beautiful moment, actually in verse 16, it'd be better to uh, translate, she laid him on her bosom. It means chest. And it can be said of a man like uh, the poor uh, man in 2 Samuel 12 in Nathan's parable that devastated David. <clears throat> he had a poor uh, he had a little lamb and he fed it from his table. It was just his companion. And he says he held it in his bosom, right? Even uh, God in uh, Isaiah 40, 11, uh, holds us like lambs in his bosom. So it's a, it's a word of tenderness, of protection, of care. It's one of the most beautiful ways to say she who lost everything and now she's holding her precious child to her bosom, fully restored uh, by God's grace and mercy through the human love of Ruth and Boaz. Now, a couple of things to draw from this story for us. Um, you know, what's remarkable about this story is that it's, it's not got great miracles. It's just everyday life, everyday loss, everyday life of working in the fields, of the threshing floor, of a meeting at the gates, all of these things, and yet it was working a most marvelous restoration and change for Naomi and then the ultimate birth of David himself. So we are called in this to trust him in all circumstances especially in the mundane everyday things where he is working his will. And you get little pieces of it here when it will refer to the Lord. For instance, in verse 14, blessed, the, blessed be the Lord who has done this. And here and there, those mentions of the Lord. So it's all got the background. They all know that God is at work, but they're just caring about, they're just going about their everyday business. Being faithful at the things God has given you and me to do, but knowing he's got a glorious purpose for our lives. And I like to think of the new covenant uh, promise, which we are in that new covenant, uh, uh, Jeremiah 32, where he says in verses 40 and 41, I will not turn away from doing you good. I will rejoice over you to do you good. I will do good to you with all my heart and soul. Three different ways to put it, the same thing, that I am going to do you good in this covenant that I will make with you. And, of course, we see it in Romans 8. We saw it in our study of Romans 8, that all things are working for good, that if he didn't spare his son, he will not spare anything else. And I like to think of Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.32 where he says, all things work together for good and you will always have good come to you because he's given you his son. That all events that occur in your life are pre-interpreted. They're already interpreted for you. What is this? Why is this happening? Because he's committed to your good. 
He always rejoices to do you good. He will never turn away from doing you good. He will do you good with all of his heart. He is all in for doing you good every minute of every day. Not that you'll see it, not that you'll recognize it, not that it'll feel that way every time, but he is set to do you good. He will do nothing but good. And even in disaster or tragedy, loss, he means it to accomplish good in your life. So every event in your life has an interpretation already given to it. Good or bad, how it looks on the surface, this is part of his good for me. And you get a feel of that in Ruth as they are simply faithful to love and care that God is doing amazing things in the everyday and the mundane. And the other thing that we here see in this is that you never know what far-reaching things will happen as you're simply faithful. You don't know in future generations. You don't know how you may affect one person who affects another, who affects another, who affects another. The point is that we are giving ourselves to this kessed love of seeking to bring restoration to other people in whatever way we can. It could be a small way of encouragement, a small thing of, of serving someone, remembering someone with a phone call, praying for them, Always thinking, Lord, how may I extend your restoration, extend your renewal uh, by the opportunities uh, and the gifts you've given me. Lord, use me as your instrument. And it's a happy, happy way to live. If you're giving yourself away in love and joy, as, as Jesus calls us, that he will, we will know his joy as we give ourselves away in his love, then nobody can really get to you, you know. They can take everything away from you, but they can't take away your capacity to love people. Um, you're fixed and free in that regard. As Jesus said, uh, that we are the, the true free people. And then you see, obviously, God's zeal and care for our salvation. The, the finesse and the detail with which he develops the line of David, which is the line of Christ. How wild that this man Elimelech chooses to take his wife and his two boys to Moab and then they die there and then he plants in Ruth's heart this desire that she will not be torn away from Naomi even though Orpah goes back and, and then her faithfulness in the field and all these things and all this had to happen for David to be born. I mean, it really did. I know you think, well, God would have done it a different... Well, we're to read it like, look at all the details of God's working so that there would be a David and ultimately so there would be a Christ. And that's the story of uh, the patriarchs and why each time a woman was barren, God gave the birth and and in this case, it specifically says God uh, caused her to conceive because God is bringing about the ultimate birth of his Messiah for our uh, benefit. And of course, he, as Boaz, took on the, uh, the, the burden and the cost of what to redeem Naomi and redeem and have then Ruth for himself himself. 
we think of Christ, of course, taking on in a far larger way uh, our burdens, uh, the burden of sin itself uh, to rescue us. What a redeemer we have who gladly, just like Boaz, gladly took that burden to himself when whatever loss he would suffer infinitely more, Jesus gladly associated with us, joined himself to all of our loss and sin and redeemed us forever to have us for himself, to have us as his bride forever. So we rejoice in him and may you be encouraged by this uh, precious little story. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful book. Uh, We thank you for what you've revealed in the love of people for one another as they manifest the very love of God uh, that you have shown, especially in the person of Christ. Lord, may we live in that kind of joy and that kind of joyful sacrifice, giving ourselves away for your glory and honor. Amen.